The title for this lesson is The Sixth Day, Part 2, and we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, which is the end of the chapter. For eight lessons, we have been considering the contents of Genesis chapter 1, which declares for us the account of God's creation of the universe and everything in it. This creation work was accomplished through a very logical and orderly sequence of stages which took place over six literal 24-hour days. Everything that God created and formed in those foundational six days was essential to providing a world perfectly suited to sustain life and to provide aesthetic value for man, who is the capstone of God's creative work. Now, we've already looked in detail at God's creative accomplishments of days one, through day five, which included his creation of time, space, matter, light, motion, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the biosphere, which is the dry land, all the vegetation of earth, the celestial lights out there in space, and also all the vast variety of water and air creatures. And then in our first look at day six, we discussed God's creation of the huge array of strange and unique land animals. As we continue our consideration then of the sixth day of the creation week, we come at long last to God's final act of creation, man. Man is the crowning apex and he is the climactic summit of God's creative work. Everything else, the sun, the moon, the stars, the gorgeous greenery, the millions of creeping, crawling, climbing, swimming, flying creatures of every size and shape, the perfect ideal atmosphere which surrounds this planet, the unique liquid water that we have on this planet, and the mystifying light, which, you know, science has never really been able to explain even what light is. All of this was merely created to display God's glory to man. Man is the creature whom God planned and purposed to create in eternity past, long before the foundation of the earth was ever laid. So the creation of man is the subject of the important passage of scripture to which we come in this lesson. Now our outline for the significant verses we will be looking at, verses 26 to 31, consists of five parts. In part one, we will look at God's counsel about man. In part two, we will discuss God's creation of man. In part three, we'll look at God's commission to man, which consisted of two, um, two parts. He, uh, he commissioned man to reproduce, and he con commissioned man to reign. And then in part four, we will look at God's cuisine for man, what God had designed for man to eat. And lastly, we'll look at verse 31, God's closing creation comment. So, let's look, first of all, at God's counsel about man, and for this we look at verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26, where the scripture says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Something unique and intriguing occurs here in verse 26. In all of God's previous acts of creation, he spoke things into existence, remember, by the words, let there be. 
in the Hebrew it's haya, let there be. Um, however, now in verse 26, God speaks to himself. This is very personal. God says to himself, let us make man in our image. No longer the word haya, let there be. God, we know here, was not speaking to the angels because the angels did not help to create man, nor is man made in the image and likeness of angels. So God is not speaking to the angels. He was not speaking to the angels when he said, let us make man in our image. Neither was God, who else could he have been speaking to? Was he speaking to the animals? Of course, he wasn't speaking to the animals either because the animals did not help God to create man. And that's ludicrous. <coughs> nor would God counsel with the animals about the creation of man, and nor is man made in the image and likeness of the animals. So God was obviously speaking to himself. One person of the triune Godhead was communicating with another person. And although this is the very first time in the scripture that we find this interdivine communication taking place in the Bible, we do find that such communication takes place a number of other places as well in the scripture. For example, if you want to flip over to Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, this uh, passage has to do with man's building of the Tower of Babel, which displeased God. And so God said, go to, let us go down and there confound their language. There again, God is speaking to himself within the Trinitarian Council of the Godhead. Then over in Psalm 2-7, God the Father spoke to God the Son, saying, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 110, verse 1, we read of words spoken between the Father and the Son. The scripture there says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. God is speaking to his Son. And there are other places as well in the Old Testament. And then we know that there is a, a good deal of communication between the Trini Trinity members in the New Testament as well. For example, in such passages as Matthew 11:27, John 8:42, actually the whole chapter of John 17 where Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer to his Father, that's God the Son speaking to God the Father, and Hebrews chapter 1, etc., we know that the divine councils among the Godhead had occurred even before the beginning of time as well, because the scripture tells us that the names of the redeemed <clears throat> had been written in the Lamb's book of life before the laying of the foundation of the world. We're told this in 1 Peter 1.20, Revelation 17.8, 2 Timothy 1.9. However, on the sixth day of the creation week, the Trinity had another meeting, and in this council they determined to create man in their own image. So this passage of the scripture is not only very important in that it demonstrates that God himself is more than one person. As we also saw through, uh, throughout chapter 1, every time it says God in the Hebrew, it's Elohim. And Elohim has the plural ending, I am, the plural Hebrew ending. But it is always used with a singular verb. So you have a plural subject used with a singular verb. So we have also that hint that God is more than one. But this passage that we're looking at is also important in what it tells us about man. 
and we'll discuss this further in the second part of our outline. However, before getting to that, I just want to very briefly mention the latter half of God's inner Trinitarian council regarding man. You see, after the Trinity agreed to make man in their own image and likeness, they went on to say in verse 26, and let them, and there they are speaking about both male and female, in other words, they're speaking about both Adam and Eve, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle. See what we have there? We have fish, fowl, and the cattle represent all the land animals. And notice this, and over all the earth and then over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, which could include all the insects, as well as perhaps the am some of the amphibians or the reptiles as well. Well, so that covers all the animal world. They're to have dominion over all of the, um, the animals. And then if we look carefully, we notice that God was creating man not only to have dominion over all the animals of the earth, but also, it says very clearly, over all the earth. So man was to have dominion over the earth from which he was to be made or, or formed. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 2, verse 7. So that's all I want to say now about the first part of our outline, God's counsel about man. Let's look at verse 27 and discuss God's creation of man. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female created he them. Man is not just a chance product of a long evolutionary process. Man is not just another animal. He is a very special being distinctively created in the very image of God himself. And this was not said about any other living creature who was created. Man was something brand new in the universe. He was not an angel, and he was not an animal, neither of which are stated to be created in God's very image. It's interesting to notice that actually both the Hebrew words asa, meaning made, and bara, meaning created, are used to speak of God's creation of man. In verse 26, as the Godhead spoke of making man in their own image, the word for make is asa. Man's body would be formed in the same way the bodies of the animals had been formed, from the pre-existing matter that God had created, the matter of the earth. Furthermore, man would have the spirit of life within him, just as the animals. So even though man's structure, physically and mentally, would be much more complex than that of the animal kingdom, yet it would be of the same essential matter and life. But man was to be something much greater than animals because he was to be made in the very image of the Creator himself. And nowhere else, as I've already mentioned, does God ever say that he created a being in his own image and after his own like likeness. Since God is eternal, this means that man created in God's image is also eternal. Unlike the animal world, man was created with an eternal soul. But the angels are also eternal, aren't they? So the eternal nature of man does not make man uniquely created in the image of God. Like God, man was also created with self-consciousness and God-consciousness. 
capacities not previously created in the physical universe, although, again, these capacities do exist in the spiritual world of angelic beings. So what then makes man so unique that he alone is stated in the scripture to be made in the very image of God himself? Well, the answer, I believe, lies in the fact that man, like God, is a trinity. Man is spiritually, mentally, and physically a being. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 confirms this truth when the Apostle Paul wrote, quote, And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man is made up of spirit, soul, and body. Unlike God, animals are only physical beings. They possess bodies and the spirit of life, but they have no eternal soul. Angels are eternal spirits who have never possessed a physical body. So man alone is a triune creature, like God himself. Yet being made in the very image and likeness of God means even more than being triune. We can be sure that it also refers to the fact that man is a personality. As a personality, he has self-consciousness and is capable of making his own choices. Man is a free moral agent. It's interesting to notice that, as I said, man was both made, Asa, verse 26, and created, Bara, verse 27, in the image of God. That's a profound truth which is really impossible to completely comprehend. However, we are going to attempt to consider some of what it entails. God himself is eternal, as I said a little while ago. Since man is made in the image of God, this means that man too is eternal. Man was originally created as an immortal being, like God. He was not created to die. As an immortal being living in the physical world, man had two rights. One, he had the right to live on this earth, and two, he had the right to live with God forever. However, when man exercised his divinely given ability to have freedom of choice with regard to his obedience to his creator, and he willingly chose to turn in rebellion against God, he lost both his right to live on this earth forever and his right to live with God forever. In his deliberate disobedience to his creator, man was saying that he preferred a different world from the one God had made for him, and he preferred a different God from God himself. The God that man preferred was his own will. Therefore, man condemned himself to leave this earth, to die physically, as we're told in Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3.19, and to be eternally separated from God. So he condemned himself to leave this earth and to be eternally separated from God. Because man was created as an immortal being, this means that he would continue to live forever, regardless of his physical removal from this earth. He would therefore be placed somewhere else other than earth, somewhere eternally apart from God, because this was the result of his own deliberate choice of disobedience. And it is likewise the choice of all men who reject God's remedy for this eternal separation from himself. And that remedy is uh, salvation 
through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when men refuse the remedy for eternal separation from himself, then that's what they receive is eternal separation from God. But through Christ, the image of God within man can be renewed. By faith in Christ's atoning death on his behalf, man can be born again. He can be made spiritually alive to God as he was originally created in the beginning to be and never to perish. He can partake of God's divine nature. It says in 2 Peter 1, 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. When men accept God's way of being renewed and regenerated in Christ Jesus, they are also assured of living forever in the new heavens and the new earth, as it tells us in Revelation chapter 21. They even get their bodies back, for their bodies, their resurrected bodies are glorified. So it's even better. Well, being created in the image of God encompasses those aspects of human nature which are not shared by the animal kingdom. This includes such human attributes as self-consciousness, moral consciousness, the ability to worship and love God, which we could call spiritual consciousness or even God consciousness. Um, Man has the ability to think abstractly. He has an intellect. He has the ability to make decisions and to appreciate and understand beauty, the aesthetic um, beauty of the world around him, and to feel emotions. Since none of these capacities are part of the animal creation, it required a new creation in the physical world. And so the third usage of the Hebrew word bara appears in verse 27 regarding the creation of man. No animal has the inherent power to breathe eternally. Nor does any animal have the drive and the ability to reason after God or to relate to God. However, man does, because man is not only body and physical life, but man has an eternal soul. Man is immortal. Um, Man is also triune. As we said, God is triune, three persons in one and man also is triune therefore he's you know because he was made in the image and likeness of of god so he also is triune body soul and spirit god's image within man is the power of immortality you see man lives as we've been saying beyond this earth all men live forever they live forever somewhere And uh, that depends on what they do with the Lord Jesus Christ. They will either live forever in heaven, having accepted him, or they will tragically live forever in hell, having rejected him. So God created Bara, man, in his own image. And uh, he also made, or Asa, man, in his image. In fact, Asa made is the word used as the trinity themselves said let us make man in our image after our likeness that which was made or formed from pre-existing matter was man's body remember uh, to make means to form and god took the dust of the earth which was already existing matter and he used it to form man's body and again we'll look at that when we get to chapter 2 verse 7 
So there must therefore be some sense in which man's body is also made in the image of God in a way which is not true of either the angels or the animals. Because God said, let us make, asa, form man in our image. So how is man's body formed in the image of God? This is kind of strange because we know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. So how can he have a body? He's not confined to a body. And according to John 4.24, we also read that God is spirit. So how could man's physical body, uh, our flesh bodies, how could they be made in the image of God, as the scripture says? Well, to answer this, we can say that even though God has no physical body, he made or he formed, he designed man's body to enable it to be able to function in ways in which he functions even without a body. Man's body is built in such a way that uh, that he can do what God does. According to the scripture, we learn that God can see, God can hear, God can smell, God can touch, God can speak. God can do all of the, these things even without physical ears, eyes, nose, hands, mouth, etc. Also, we know that whenever God designed himself to visibly appear to men, he did so in the form of a human body. didn't take on the form of an animal. He took on the form of a human body. And these physical appearances of God were pre-incarnate appearances of actually the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who ever did take on a human body. And we know that Christ in the fullness of time, actually became a man, although without sin. God specially prepared a human body for his son. And this body, according to Philippians 2.7, very interestingly, it says there, was made in the likeness of men. So God, when he came to earth, was made in the likeness of men. Very interesting. Just as man had originally been made in the likeness of God. So there is something special about the human body, which makes it uniquely appropriate to God's manifestation of himself, of his character, and of his abilities. He must have formed and designed man's body with all of this in mind. So he, he formed it not like any of the animals, but with an erect posture capable of an upward gaze. In fact, the Greek word for man is anthropos, that's a word from which we get anthropology or the study of man. And anthropos in the Greek actually means upward looking. Man has the ability more easily than any animal to just turn his head and gaze upward and, and to worship his creator and to praise him and to think on things that are above. God formed man also with the ability to make facial expressions in order to um, convey his various emotions. They correspond to his emotions. And he gave man a very special brain, able to contemplate God and his own origin and also his destiny. Animals don't sit around and think about those things, but man does. He also provided man with a unique tongue and with special hands and fingers, which are also intricately wired to his brain 
as to be capable of producing articulate speech and written language. Man alone can communicate through very intricate speech and articulate, you know, as I'm speaking to you, I'm not really um, thinking a lot about forming my words or anything, and you're not really thinking very deeply about hearing them, but we are very easily here communicating. You're understanding what my tongue is saying. And we also have written language, which is unique in the, um, the world. So before going on then, we do need to mention that we're talking about the image of God, which does rest upon man. It is just that. <clears throat> it is just an image. Since the fall, it is even a marred image. It's somewhat like the print of a man, a man's face on a coin or on a postage stamp. The image on the coin, we have to understand, is not the person, person himself. It's only an image of that person. It's not that because we're made in the image of God that we are little gods. Not at all. We just have the image of God printed on us. We are not God himself. However, even though it's only an image of God, it is an image and it is a likeness of him, which is something unique in the world. <laughs> now, the reason that God has given man an image and likeness of himself is so that man will walk by faith and freely choose to worship and love God. You see, God has given just enough of himself to man to cause man to hunger and seek after the one in whose likeness he realizes he must have been made. There's just enough of God's image and likeness in us, even in fallen man, to drive him to seek after God, to know the one who created him. You know, man has the ability to think about his origins and his destiny and therefore you know he has eternity written in his heart so this image of God imprinted on us should cause us to seek after our creator say who is it who created us I want to know him we also seek after immortality because God's image is imprinted on us and he is immortal he is eternal Acts 17 27 says that they should seek, that's speaking of us, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and might find him, though he be not far from every one of us. He's not far from us because his image is imprinted on us. Well, when man does seek after God and finds him, and how do we find God? We find him revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and revealed in his word, the written word and the living word. When man seeks after God and finds him and is reunited to his creator through his faith in Christ, then the divine image of God within man can be renewed. In Christ, man can be born again, which means that he is made spiritually alive to God, just as Adam and Eve were spiritually alive to God before they sinned. Man can partake of God's divine nature as he puts on the new man. It says in Colossians 3.10, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, of God that created man is what that's saying. It's interesting to think about the fact that in the recreation of man or in the um, you know rebirth of man, which was ne is necessitated because of the fall, 
in the recreation, God sends forth both his son and his spirit to rebirth a man. I mean, it was the son, his son, who died for man, and it's the spirit who gives testimony of the son to an individual so that he is rebirthed or he experiences the second birth or the new birth of regeneration, which we commonly call salvation. So in the recreation, God sent forth both his son and his spirit to rebirth man. And he also, this is exactly what he did in the initial creation of man. God sent forth both his son and his spirit to create man. Colossians 1 verses 15 to 17 clearly tells us that by Christ all things were created. That includes man. And we know in Genesis 2-7 it was God's spirit who gave life to man. Actually all three members of the triune Godhead were involved in the creation of man and they're involved in the recreation of man. The Hebrew word, we've talked about what the Greek word for man is, anthropos. The Hebrew word for man is also very interesting. And it is the word Adam. And I'm not sure if that's how they pronounce it in Hebrew, but it's the word A-D-A-M, a word which is related to the Hebrew word for the ground of the, of the earth, which is Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H. And, of course, we know that the first man, Adam, was indeed made from Adama, the ground of the earth. Chapter 2, by the way, of Genesis, which tells us about man being made from the ground of the earth, gives us the account of how man was created, as well as, of course, how a woman was created. In chapter 1, we just have the simple fact of his creation, you know, that he was created in God's image, but when we get to chapter 2, we'll see specifically how he was created. Man, who is the crowning summit of God's creation, is not just an animal, even though, like the animals, his body was formed from the dust of the earth, from pre-existing matter that God had already made. Man is, man is not only of the earth, he is also of God. He's not only of the physical world like the animals, but he's also of the spiritual world. Neither is man just of the spiritual world, like the angels. Man is both flesh and spirit. He's related to the animals of the earth, but he's also related to God. In man, you see, both flesh and spirit are brought together, and both earth and heaven are represented. Are represented. Only in man are both now and eternity desired. Think about that. I mean, the angels don't desire to live now on earth, and the animals certainly don't desire to uh, live in eternity. They don't think about living eternally. So only in man are both now, here on earth, and eternity desired. We want to live here on earth. We also want to live eternally with God. And only in man are both the physical world and the spiritual world experienced. All of us are experiencing the physical world, and all of us one day will experience the spiritual world. Whether it's in heaven or hell, we will experience the spiritual world. Now, it was just mentioned, or I just mentioned, that man is related to the animal world. And I don't want you to get me wrong on that and think that I am saying that we have that man has evolved from the primates or something. So what do I mean by that? Well, 
uh, it means essentially that man shares some of the uh, following things I'm going to list in common with the animals, according to the creation account. First of all, man is formed or made out of the dust of the earth, as were also the animals. We've already discussed that. Man lives of the earth, just as the animals live off of the earth. Three, man carries on the human race by the same process with which animals carry on their own individual species, and that, of course, is by way of reproduction after their own kind. And fourth, animals were created for man. They were created to be companions or associates to man. However, there are also four ways in which man differs from the animals. Man is different from the animals in the mind and the heart of God himself. It took a, a Trinitarian council to be held in order to discuss man's creation. So God holds very man very special and dear to his own heart, so much so that he actually became a man himself in order to die and redeem man after he fell. According to scripture, also, man is different from the animals. Um, and we know this from the fact that the words, let us make man indicate a much more direct and distinctive act of God than the words let the earth bring forth or let the waters spring forth or let there be etc um, and when it came to the animals it was let the earth bring forth so God was much more directly involved in the creation of man he says let us make man not just let the earth bring forth. He could have said that, let the earth bring forth man, but he specifically made man himself. The text of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 points to the creation of a being of great dignity and intelligence and power, a being who was to rule and master the earth for God, and that we do not see with the animals. Third, man differs from the animals in the manner in which God created him. God breathed his very own breath, his own spirit and life into man, which is not said he did for the animals. Man is different from the animal kingdom also by realm of his office. Man was given dominion over all the earth, which, is included, which includes his dominion over all the animals. So these are the differences between man and animals, or some of them at any rate. Now by the words, let us make man in our, own Im in our image after our likeness, God was showing that man is indeed the crowning apex and the glory of all of his creation. Man was the being who embraced all the nobility and dignity of God's mind. He's the being for whom God created the whole universe the being who was divinely purposed to master and control all of God's creation and was then given the power to do it. It says in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. It's made clear in this verse that the term man, which was used back in verse 26 where God said let us make man that that term man was a generic term which included both male and female and we know that now from verse 27 God created both man and woman in his image therefore both man and woman possess equally 
body, soul, spirit, and the eternal capability of a personal relationship with their creator. Each one, both male and female, was created for God, as well as by God. Each one, male and female, is as important to God as the other. Each one was created to live for God's glory, serving him and worshiping him as creator and Lord and sovereign king of all life. Now, why do you suppose that the scripture re-emphasizes the fact of God's creation of man? If you'll notice, it actually tells us three times in these two verses, 26 and 27, that man was made in the image of God, in the image of God, in the image of God, three times. Well, perhaps one reason for this re-emphasis is to firmly stress that God and God alone created man. Humankind did not just by chance emerge and then slowly evolve from some primeval waters by way of spontaneous generation. No, no, no. Man, we're told in the scripture, was created exclusively by God and in God's image. And there seems to be one mention of that for each member of the creator trinity. I think that's why it says three times that man was made in his image, one for each member of the Trinity. This emphasis on God as man's creator also stresses the importance of man as the creature. Man is just the creature. He's not the creator. And as the creature, man must not reject or deny. He must not neglect or ignore his creator because this will only lead to his own rejection by his creator. Such willful and proud rebellion only leads man to his own condemnation and judgment, and rightfully so, because as man's creator, God has absolutely every right to judge his own rebellious creation. We are not to question what God does. He is the creator. We are merely the creature. As our creator, he has every right to do whatsoever he pleases with us. We have absolutely no rights, really, if you want to come down to it. We have no rights at all. And we should just be thankful and praise God that he even gave us life and that he offers us eternal life through his son. Well, let's move to look at verse 28, our th the third part of our outline, God's commission to man. Look with me at Genesis 1:28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. After creating man and woman, God blessed them, as we find in the first few words of verse 28 here. So Genesis 1:28 is actually a description of the very first meeting held by God with both man and woman. Now we know, we'll find out when we get to chapter 2, um, verse 16, we know that God had met alone with Adam before Eve was created, but here we have a description of the first meeting held after Eve was created, and we know that this meeting involved both of them because of the use of the pronoun them. Them is used here in verse 28 in reference to both God's blessing and to his commission. So very shortly following God's creation of Eve, who came, of course, after Adam, 
God met with this first couple face to face, so to speak, to bless them and to explain to them by way of his commissioning commandments who they were and what their function on earth was to be. You know, God doesn't want to leave men in the dark. Right after they were created, God told them who they were and what they were all about, what their function was to be. And that's good. That's what man always needs to know and wants to know, and so God wastes no time in telling them. The blessing itself can be stated in terms of God's bountiful privileges for the human couple. He blessed them, really, first of all, with the privilege of his very own presence. He was there with them. They were blessed with intimate fellowship with the, their creator, with God. And they were also blessed with the privilege of life itself. He gave them, he had given them life, and that's a blessing. Since this was before the fall, they were also blessed with not only abundant life, but with eternal life. They were blessed so that they would never die. And they were blessed in that they were created in the very image and likeness of God, as we have been talking about. And therefore, they were the capstone of all of his mighty creation. And they were further blessed by the special and unique home which God had created for them, the earth, with all of its abundant provisions for food and for life and health and, and beauty and animal companionship. <clears throat> and they were blessed in having one another, of being male and female, uh, compatibles. And <clears throat> the added blessing of being able to love one another and to reproduce their own species, to have children. A further blessing, which we find in the commandments to follow, is that they were given the privilege of ruling and reigning over all the creatures of the earth, which involved the privilege of work. Work is a privilege. I know sometimes we complain about it, but it really is a privilege because there is purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment in working. How long do you think it would have taken Adam and Eve to have get, gotten bored if they had absolutely nothing to do after God placed them on earth? wouldn't have taken them long at all and then <clears throat> they would have probably gotten into trouble and started fighting god needs to give man work work is a blessing it it gives man satisfaction and so he gave them uh, a purpose he gave them a job and that job was to subdue the earth through research and discovery and development and growth and he also gave them the um the task of ruling over the animal realm. So that's what we're going to look at now. The two general assignments given by God to man, which were given really in the form of commandments. These weren't options, these were commandments. One was that they were to reproduce, and the second was that they were to reign or rule. The very first command ever given to mankind, very first one by God, was that they were to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And by the way, the word replenish in the Hebrew is a word which very simply means fill. They were to fill the earth. They were not to replenish it because it had been uh, catastrophically destroyed, um, as the people who support the gap theory would say. That is not what the word means. It means that they were simply to fill the earth. And this was a wonderful commission. It was a blessed commission. Man and woman were divinely commanded to establish the closest bond imaginable. 
as they loved one another, cared for one another, trusted one another, were loyal to one another, etc. They were to walk, work, and worship hand in hand, so to speak. Man and woman, in intimate physical union, were to reproduce their species by having children. Sex, rather than the filthy thing which sinful man has turned it into in just about every generation or all generations I guess I could safely say but it was designed by God originally to be a lovely pleasurable and practical means to produce children reproduction by the way is known as natural generation there have been four ways in which God brought mankind into this universe one was by direct creation, which was how he produced Adam. The second was by indirect creation, which was the manner in which God produced Eve. The third was by way of a virgin birth, and this method was only used once when the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into the human family. And the fourth manner of producing mankind is used every other time other than these three unique situations, Adam, Eve, and Jesus Christ. And it is, this fourth one is by natural generation, which is the physical union of one man and one woman. So in his very first commission to man, God tells him and her to fill the earth by multiplying themselves through their children. So from Adam and Eve, the entire human race would come. Adam is the head of, of the human race, which is what is stated for us throughout the scripture. So when supposed Christians attempt to compromise with evolution by cutting out a literal Adam and Eve, you know, kind of spiritualizing them, when they do this, they are also cutting out Romans chapter 5, where God, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, the Apostle Paul, sums up the entire human race in Adam and traces all the sin and sorrow in the world back to him. You see, if there was no real Adam, then the Bible is lying. And Romans 5 is based on a myth. And the Lord Jesus, who is referred to as the second Adam, was either deceived or a liar because he also believed in a literal Adam. In either situation, if Jesus Christ was either deceived about his belief in Adam or if he was deliberately lying about Adam either case he was not the son of God and that leaves us without a savior if there was no literal first Adam who fell into sin then there is no need for Christ the second Adam it's in Adam the first Adam that we all inherit our sin nature so if we did not inherit our sin nature why do we need a redeemer So we have a problem when we try to compromise with evolution by cutting out a literal Adam and Eve. However, when we believe what God has written in his word and we don't try to alter it to fit with men's theories, then we find no inconsistencies which cannot be resolved. Although many people are becoming increasingly unsettled about the population explosion on earth, we can be sure that God's original command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was given in full understanding and knowledge about the amount of population which this earth is able to support even with the large number of human beings that we now have on earth around six billion 
and with our present level of technology, the Earth is still capable of supporting a much greater population. Besides, we know that God's plan for the future, with the coming seven-year tribulation period, will remove any kind of population threat to the Earth. Now, some may wonder if there had been no fall, if the Earth would have had room for the vast population, which would soon have filled it if there was no death. Again, we can be sure that God would have done something. Although, of course, we have to understand that he who knows the end from the beginning did know that sin would enter into the world through Adam, and with sin, death. Yet it's interesting to also realize that there is some research done in the studies of animal populations which demonstrate that when a given group of animal species increases in number to the optimum optimum level in a struggle for existence world, that their population stabilizes. This is not due, however, to a struggle for existence conflict, but to a built-in psychological or physiological mechanism which amazingly slows down the reproductive activity of that particular population. God may have done the same with the human population. Or, of course, had there been no fall, he would have sent his son to reign over this earth in a thousand-year kingdom and then led us on into the eternal state much sooner than he has had to do because of our fall. Some have even suggested that had there been no fall, men might have been divinely permitted to colonize other planets. So who knows? Well, let's look at his second commission to this first couple, and that is that they were to reign. The second part of God's commandment or commission to man and woman had to do with their position. God not only blessed them with the privilege of reproduction, but also with the privilege of responsibility. He gave them responsibility in two areas. First of all, he commissioned them to subdue the earth, and secondly, to have dominion over the animals of the earth. The command of God to man and woman to subdue the earth has been called by some, in case you want to know this and put it in the margin of your Bible, this command is called the cultural mandate. Essentially, It's a mandate to rule and master the earth, or to look after and care for the earth, to investigate the earth through research and technology and science, to develop and use the earth's resources, to manage the earth with all of its vast provisions and resources. So God's commission to man authorized man's use of science and technology in order to explore and to understand and to have knowledge of his earth so as to best maintain it and utilize its resources for the greater good of not only man's present generation but future inhabitants as well and this would include the animal kingdom man was to maintain the the earth take care of it for the greater good of the people who lived on it and the animals so this was a command really which established man as God's steward of the earth and all the things of the earth. Psalm 8, verses 6 to 8 says, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. 
End of quote. Also, <clears throat> all the animals were originally placed under the dominion of Adam and Eve. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 20, when all the animals very submissively come before Adam to be named by him. Dominion means to rule over or to master, as well as to look after and to care for. Man was to care for the animals. You know, originally, before the fall, there was no savagery among the animal kingdom. Neither man nor animals ate each other or ate one another. Man and animals, even including dinosaurs and all animals, which we now call wild, like lions and tigers and and, and uh, all the wild animals that we can think of, they, they all lived peacefully with one another and apparently with even some affection and concern for one another. But man was the king of the jungle, so to speak. He was the ruler, and the animals knew that. But after the fall, this all changed, didn't it? Animals and man now live in a world which is full of savagery and struggle for food and survival rights and land rights and all that goes on, animals eating animals and men eating men even in some cases, at least killing men. Yet we know, those of us who have looked ahead at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, we know that there is coming a promised new day in the millennial kingdom which will be established by the last Adam after his return to the earth. And in that 1,000-year kingdom, peace will again reign on earth as it did for that short time before the fall in the Garden of Eden. So in the millennial kingdom, once again, the lamb will be able to lie down with the lion and not fear being eaten. A cow and a bear, a, a domestic and a wild animal, will be able to feed together. And a child will be perfectly all right, mother, even if he decides to make friends with a, a venomous snake. Because in the millennial kingdom, there won't be any poisonous snakes who will even desire to harm anyone. There won't be anything that will harm anything else in the animal kingdom. So, as we know all too well, man has failed in his stewardship responsibility when he first allowed sin to enter into his heart. And as a result, not only was he the cause for bringing death to this world, but his sin nature has caused him to deny God and to abuse this wonderful earth onto which God had placed him. Instead of using the earth for good, man has exploited it for his own selfish motives. Instead of using science and technology for the good of all men and the glorification of God, man has attempted to replace God with these very tools. I mean, man has made science and technology, so to speak, his God. In many cases, this is true. They are his gods. So the writer of Hebrews, acknowledging that man failed in his stewardship responsibility, wrote, quote, But now we see not yet all things put under him. You see, Adam lost his dominion over this world and over the animal kingdom, and he lost it to Satan when he willingly disobeyed God. However, when the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came to earth, he demonstrated absolute authority over all the earth, the way it was supposed to be with the first Adam. He demonstrated authority over nature, over the fish, over wild animals, over domestic animals, over the fowl. Such was the dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom 
which God had originally given to the first Adam. So the earth and its creatures were given to Adam and Eve as both an inheritance and a responsibility. They were given to him as an estate and an obligation. Today, when a man or a woman trusts in Christ and his death on his or her behalf and becomes a new creature in Christ, born again, he or she should realize that God has given the earth to us to look after and to manage. And therefore, they, above all people, should be challenged to do their part, even in a yet sin-cursed earth. We as Christians should work diligently to make a positive contribution to this earth and to its societies. Man is challenged to live for God and to live before others in such a way and manner that brings honor and glory to God. Knowing God, our Creator, in a personal way through His Son, Jesus Christ, and knowing why God has placed us on earth and committing our lives to Him and to His great purpose for us, which is to glorify Him and have eternal fellowship with Him, this gives people purpose for their lives. It gives them fulfillment and it gives them satisfaction. These were the special gifts God originally intended for all mankind when he commissioned our first parents to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it and over the animals. God was meeting, you see, two of man's most basic needs in this assignment. Man needs to be loved and man needs to be challenged. Also, man needs to love and to commit his life to something with a meaningful purpose. God loved man, and God challenged him with his commission to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the animals. Because of God's love for him, Adam was able to also love God back. And Adam was able to love Eve, and Eve was able to love Adam. And Adam's commission over this earth and its creatures made his life challenging and meaningful, as it did with Eve, his wife, as well. Man had purpose, and therefore he could be fulfilled, and he could find satisfaction. So it was a perfect setting for what could have been a perfect existence for all of mankind. God gave man his own image, his own love. He gave man companionship with not only his own kind, but with the animal kingdom as well. God gave man a responsibility and a purpose. And as we find in verses 29 to 30, he also gave man and the animals food to eat. So let's look at God's cuisine for man as we look at verses 29 and 30. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat." And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. Uh, we need to understand here, first of all, that the word meat, which is found here in these two verses, is actually the Hebrew word for food. Uh, man and animal were man and animals were originally created to be not meat eaters but vegetarians, and this word does not this King James word meat meat just literally means food. It does not mean meat as we think of meat flesh. There was no such thing as eating flesh or meat before the fall. Now this is not to say that after the fall man did not eat meat 
because we know that once man had fallen, he certainly disobeyed God in every other way possible. So no doubt he disobeyed God in this respect and probably ate meat as well. However, after the flood, God himself sanctioned the eating of meat for man. But originally man was intended to be a vegetarian. It was not until after the flood that God sanctioned the eating of meat. So don't look at the word meat in these verses and think of meat. Put the word food next to it. In the Garden of Eden, though before Adam's sin, men and animals were provided with an abundance of food. They were given to eat every plant that bears seed and every tree that bears fruit, with, of course, one exception, which we're going to be told about in chapter 2. That exception is they were not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they had all kinds of other fruits and herbs that they could partake of. Now, notice that it says that there was vegetation upon the face of all the earth. And what does that tell us? It tells us that there was no barren or desolate desert places on the originally created earth. And this supports the water vapor canopy concept that we talked about God creating on day two of creation. So the whole earth was a tropical paradise. There was vegetation everywhere. Okay, let's close with God's closing creation comment in verse 31 where it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The creation was, as God himself declared after his work of day six, all the creation was very good. And we're going to talk more about God's comment of his completed creation in our next lesson. He had never said that any of his work of any day was very good. He had said before that it was good. Now he says it's very good, and that literally means exceedingly good. And this, again, eliminates any of those compromise theories that try to compromise evolutionism with creationism because if everything was very good, this means that there was no death and no struggle and no fossils before Adam and Eve. So the record of the sixth day of creation, <laughs> the day God created all the land creatures, including man, ended in the same manner as the previous five days, where it says, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. It did not take God millions upon millions of years to finally produce man. Rather, man was made actually in less than one 24-hour day because we know that the first half of that day was dedicated to the creation of the land animals. Now, I pray and hope you'll come back next week because we'll have an exciting lesson entitled, What About the Ape Men?